This is the All Sports Podcast devoted to your favorite teams in North Texas. Welcome to Ballsy, a production of the Dallas Morning News and Sports Day. Our weekly show is proudly hosted. Okay, strike that. Our show is hosted by Kevin Sherrington, Evan Grant, and myself. I'm David Moore, and who knows, maybe we'll have a special guest or two along the way. Catch other episodes by subscribing to the Ballsy Podcast on iTunes. We're also on social media. Just search Ballsy Podcast on Facebook and Twitter, and you'll be notified of the latest episode. Don't forget, it's Ballsy with a Z. Are you ready, sports fans? Ballsy starts now. Hello, everybody. Welcome into Ballsy, the Sports Day DFW Dallas Morning News Sports Podcast. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by Evan Grant. Hello, Evan. Good morning, Kevin. How's everything with you? Well, thank you for asking, Kevin. I um, Everything's very quiet here. It's all good. I got back from Arizona on Sunday night, and on Monday... I immediately went and stuffed my stuff stuffed stuffed my face full of barbecue, so I'm good. Where'd you go for barbecue? Well, you know, um, I don't want to um, hurt my great standing reputation with any of the holy trilogy here in Dallas, but um, I really the holy think- trinity is what we call that <laughs> trilogy. Trilogy, trinity, whatever. I thought the <laughs> trinity was a river and whatever. Yeah. So a- anyway, I. Um, uh, Slowbone is right around the corner from me. And um, I usually go by there on Tuesdays because they got a baked potato special loaded up with all kinds of brisket and stuff. But uh, yesterday, I just went by there and picked up a little bit of brisket and some turkey. You know, that's good. Have you been to Blacks down in Deep Ellum yet? I've been there with you, Kevin. Oh, well, I couldn't remember. It, w- it wasn't a big deal to me. So I, it was I didn't before know. the pandemic, Kevin. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, that was so long ago. Come on. That was like a whole lifetime ago. A that's lifestyle true. ago, that's for sure. Uh, no, I've been there. I, we we really liked it. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Lots well, good. And of course, Heim Barbecue. You know, is down now in Dallas, across the street from Love Field. Love Heim. It's very yep. good. Love the burn ends. Burn ends are the bur- the bacon burn ends at Heim um, will overshadow anything else you eat there. That's that is the problem because they are so good. They make you forget about everything else. I don't know about that, but I, but I, I do like it. And, you know, our, uh, up here where I live in North Dallas, uh, we, we got Cadillacs, uh, uh, Cadillac right around the, uh, uh, the corner kind of. That's Cadillac. C-A-T-E-L-E-A-C-K. C-A-T-E-L-E-A-C-K. A-C-K. Not yeah. like the car. Yeah, I know. I realize that. They uh, do a great job too. And I, I, every week they've got some kind of special. And if yeah. you're lucky enough, one week they call them cutie pies. They're basically empanadas that are stuffed with uh, stuffed with with chopped brisket, and and they're fantastic. I, I mean, we've the barbecue uh, the barbecue trend, which I don't even know if it's a trend anymore. But the the, the barbecue explosion um, across America has has hit Dallas well. I'm I'm, I'm glad to see it. Yeah, I didn't realize it was across the the nation, but it's certainly a lot better now. You know, I came back to Dallas. I was born here, you know, Uh, came back to Dallas in 1985 and, uh, you know, barbecue was not good here. I I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings here, uh, but it wasn't good. And it wasn't good for a long, long time. It's just in the last, you know, five to 10 years that it's really taken off and and achieved the quality, I think, of Tex-Mex. You know, we're obviously very famous for that here. Uh, I mean, you can get the best Tex-Mex anywhere in Dallas, but I, I think finally the barbecue is, is catching up with that. 
Well, I like to quote Bowling for Soup um, when talking about Tex-Mex and in their great song, Ohio, they they preach that the Mexican food sucks north of here anyway. So <laughs> I do not eat Tex-Mex outside the state of Texas. I do not eat Mexican food in Arizona because it is not my style of Mexican food. I prefer Tex-Mex and um, I didn't think I'd be converted when I got here, but I, I am. You've been converted. Yes. Well, we're working on lots of other uh, of uh, avenues with you as well, Evan. But we'll we'll get to that later in a, maybe another kind of podcast. Um, so, oh, Evan, the uh, the the Rangers uh, open this week. Uh, they're going to have a packed house. It's just going to be it's going to be raging and roaring. There's going to be well, they're not going to be here this week, but they're going to be uh, they're going to be opening their season next week. Is when they're actually going to be here. I don't know if it's going to be a completely packed house, Kevin. Um, no, we don't know. We're a week away from opening day. Um, they've handled all their season ticket holders that were going to want tickets for opening day as part of their package. They've had opening day tickets on sale for a week now. They have not yet announced it's a complete sellout. So I think there's some question about whether or not they will get to the actual 40,518 people that they are planning to bring into the ballpark. And that's going to be a really interesting statement. You know, I mean, if they don't sell out opening day, I think it'll be the first opener that they, they haven't sold out maybe ever. Um, and if they, they end up with 37, 38,000 fans in the stands, I think it's going to, it, it will let them know that there is a, at least a, a decent segment of their hardcore fans who were not comfortable with this arrangement. Yeah, I'm sure that's right. Uh, we'll see. Uh, meanwhile, stuff has happened with the Rangers. Uh, Ruggie Odor is no longer a Texas Ranger, which, uh, I, I have to tell you, I am really surprised about that. And here's what I want to ask you about that situation. Whose idea was this? Was this John Daniels idea? Was it Chris Young? Was it Chris Woodward? Who made the, who, whose idea? I mean, obviously everybody's on the same page with this, or, or I don't, I don't think they would do it if they weren't. Uh, but who's the driving force in that decision? I, I, I... I don't think that there was ever a point in spring training when Odor was definitively on the roster. And I think any characterizations of such are reporters, including myself, making assumptions based on the fact that he played pretty well at third base and that he seemed to be off to a decent start and that there was a two-year commitment still there in terms of financial obligation. Uh, but I think the Rangers, I, I think it's clear now in, in, in hearing them talk yesterday that this club went into spring training, not at all convinced that he could um, make the change to third base, first of all. And secondly, that the bench role would, would fit for him. And I, I think what Chris Woodward explained most yesterday was that the swing metrics the Rangers use, something based on swing decisions, and it comes down to where you barrel, when you barrel the ball, strikes that you don't swing at strikes that you do swing at balls that are that you do swing at um, when they measured all those for spring training those are things that you know should ring true in or out of season um, they didn't project much more improvement off of the last two years than they didn't, they didn't project much improvement over the last two years. And, and so I think in their mind, they felt like, okay, if he's, if he's only going to be a part-time player, um, 
and this is a guy who likes to play every day, is that only going to impact him that much more? So he just wasn't a fit. You know, he just was not a fit for where this team is going. And I think they don't, the Rangers didn't say this in as many words. They didn't say, look, we're, we're just trying to put the past behind us. But there was some messaging there, too. I mean, the trades of Elvis Anderson and the, and the decision to move on from Ruggie Odor makes it very clear that this team is very much in a reset and restart phase. So you're not going to answer my question, then? You're not going to say who, who was the driving force behind this? I don't, I don't think that there was a driving force here. I think, I, I think it was very much, you know, I, Kevin, I, I can't. I'm certainly not behind the, the, the doors in that room, but I, I think that what we wrote the other day is that Chris Young brings a clarity to this organization that maybe didn't exist. I think he was able to present arguments clearly. I think John Daniels went into the spring, very open to the idea that they would move on. And I I think that Chris Woodward became convinced that, look, if, if this is part of the reset, this is part of the reset. So, you know, I, I, who the driving force was, I I, I just don't think they're going to go there because I think that becomes that then becomes the scorekeeping thing, and and then all of a sudden you're you're wondering if it's a if it's a forced marriage. Well, it's interesting to me because uh, look, we we have this vision of uh, of Rangers ownership as this group that uh, it's not necessarily tight. Uh, they they've spent money, and and when uh, John Daniels has gone to them to ask them uh, to make additions, and they've done that, but on the whole, it's not uh, they're not real loose with their money either. Uh, and so that the idea that you still owe Ruggie Odor, what, uh, 29 million, is that somewhere? 27, 27 million. million? No. Uh, and he's not going to play for you. I mean, look at, as we all know, it's a sunk cost. You're going to pay it no matter what. Uh, so, it, it, and I, and I listen, I, I'm not campaigning for Odor to, to have remained with the Rangers at all, uh, for a number of reasons. One, if you don't think he's going to play third base, then it's a mistake. Uh, he, he, he does not need to be sitting on the bench uh, because just knowing what he's like and knowing his personality and the fact that he thinks he's an everyday player, he's, I don't believe he's the kind of guy who could sit there and, and be clapping for everybody else and being a good example for everybody else. And I just don't think that's a good arrangement. And I, I don't know really that I blame him too much for that. Uh, so that there's that, uh, first of all. Uh, and secondly, I, I, you know, uh, we, we've seen what the offensive patterns have been like. I, I was pleasantly surprised with watching him play third base. I just thought he played it much better than I thought he was going to. And so I thought there was at least the potential to give this a shot. I mean, what the heck, uh, if, if the, if the, uh, alternative is playing Brock Holt or Charlie Culberson at third base, what, what are you gaining here? I mean, these are all veterans. None of these guys is going to be with the club next year. So, uh, there's no great upside to letting that go unless you think that, listen, we want a clean break from all of this. We want to start all over here. We want a different um, presence in the clubhouse. We, we want a, a different kind of situation here. And, uh, and that obviously you would think that everybody is coming to a uh, consensus here that everybody's is gathering around the campfire here and saying, uh, it's time to move on uh, it, right now. The only guy left, from what was supposed to be their core is Joey Gallo. And and who knows how much longer he's going to be here. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do feel like it wasn't the driving force in their decision, but I do think it played a role that 
this this is the most polarizing player with the fan base maybe that I've ever been around. And I do think that all he did with the fan base was bring bring you back to the last five years. And I think if you didn't feel like there was going to be tremendous, significant asset to him playing in whatever role you had for him, it just didn't make a whole lot of sense. And as you said, you know what, we were all, we were all mildly and pleasantly surprised by the way he fielded balls at third base, but it's never been about him staying on the field based on his fielding. Um, He stays on the field, whether or not he hits. And I think that, that, you know, you look at the numbers towards the end of spring training when you're facing starters longer and when you should be getting your swing down and the, the numbers were not good. He was two for 21 at that point in time. Um, you look at uh, what the Rangers obviously aren't going to show because to them it's a proprietary stat, but this swing decision metric. Um, and you look at the fact that this is a guy who's played 150 games, 162 games, 129 games, 145 games. And now you're going to say, well, maybe he'll play about 40% of the time. And then your thought would be, well, you're carrying him and another left-handed hitting third baseman. That's too much redundancy. So uh, all those things, I think, factor in. And that the, you, you end up having to make decisions that are smart. They may hurt a little bit, for, potentially, when you are signing away $27 million. Um but the, it, it, all those factors involved, I think it, it comes down to, yeah, this is probably the right decision for where this team is at this point in time. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't doubt any of that. It's a, it's an interesting decision. Uh, I wasn't expecting it. I didn't think this was going to happen. Uh, I'll tell you why you do, you didn't expect it because one person in this podcast and on this conversation was not smart enough to follow <laughs> up and pin Chris Woodward down earlier in camp when it became clear that Brock Holt was on the team and say, well, if you can commit to Brock Holt, can you commit to Rugnet Odor? So shame on me for that. But at least on Sunday, by that point in time, it dawned on me to ask the question. And uh, he was very, he was very honest. And the Rangers, you know, within a day had, had made their decision. So. Okay, now that you've uh, verbally uh, flashed or flashed, slashed yourself, uh, that's that's fine. I'm glad you got that out of your system. Uh, I'm not blaming you for that, though. Uh, there's you know there's stories we could tell about those kind of things. We've all gone through that as as reporters. Uh, but anyway, thanks for feeling that way. Uh, let's let's go around the old horn here, as they as they like to say uh, in uh, in uh, baseball lore, and 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 say who's going to be starting at each one of these positions that you for the opener this week and what you think uh, uh, is, is that just a day-to-day thing or is that going to be semi-permanent? So let's start at first base. Who's your first baseman? And the, it's going to be uh, Sam. It's going to be Nate Lowe. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, Ronald Guzman performed well during spring training, uh, but this club traded for Nate Lowe. They, lo- they saw what they wanted from Nate Lowe in terms of – Patience at the plate. I think there were some descriptions that Nate Lowe gave of his of his swing approach early in camp, in which he said, you know, going up there and looking at three strikes is not what you want to do. And I think some people may have misunderstood that as that he was going up there to strike out. I don't think that was the case, but he was very patient early on, and the Rangers did have some questions about is he being too passive. 
but he showed more aggressiveness and, and really did barrel up some balls later in camp. Um, the interesting thing will be how do the Rangers work Ronald Guzman in? Um, he's a better defender at first base than Lowe is, but I think that there's still just questions about whether or not Guzman's swing is going to be consistent in the big leagues um, against frontline pitching. And so they'll play him some, but but I think right now it's not, you wouldn't call it a platoon because they're both left-handed hitters. I, I, I think Nate Lowe is the primary first base. Second base, Nick Solak. I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, no, let me I ask mean, you do you, do you, did you see enough from him? Because uh, his numbers have been good this spring. Did you see enough to think that 2020 was a was a blip? I think that there were. I, I think there are some concerns based on this spring on the number of strikeouts that he had early on, uh, particularly chasing fastballs that he he couldn't catch up to. So there was there's some current concern about that. He did make adjustments as spring went on, um, and, and I feel like the Rangers' perspective on this is this is this is one of the guys we need to find out about this year. Um, and we need to find out if, if he's given a daily position that he can play and that he feels fairly confident at, can we get the most out of him offensively that he's capable? And so that, that is second base and, and they need to examine that. And if it, if it doesn't go well, they will find somebody else to, to, to look at there, but he's going to get the bulk of playing time at second base to start the year. Isaiah Conifer-Leffa uh, moves from third to shortstop, uh, seemed to have, of course, I didn't get to see any of this or very little of it, uh, seemed to have a really good offensive uh, uh, spring, so good that uh, that uh, Chris Woodward abandoned the, uh, frankly, silly uh, effort to make uh, uh, Tavares the leadoff hitter. I, I thought that was just silly to try to push all that on on such a young guy, and that uh, Conifer-Leffa did a good job with that. Uh, on, on Leody, I think, you know, in spring training, if you want to give him the opportunity to win the job, you, you can give him the opportunity to win the job. And I give them credit that they didn't, they didn't wait around. They, uh, they pulled the plug on it very quickly because they did see some things that they didn't like in, in the leadoff spot. Um, and I think Isaiah will take well to the leadoff spot. He's been, he's been more patient at the plate than, than before. Um, and, and this is, I think, I think, if I was picking out one trait to me that most stood out about this offense from top to bottom, the spring was a better disciplined approach at the plate. They're, they're, I, I hate using the word over and over, the phrase over and over again, but it's, it's kind of been ingrained into me this spring. The idea of swing decisions and when they want to swing and the pitches they want to swing at, um, I think they've got a better idea of where their hot zones are, of pitch recognition, of all of that. Uh, I think that they're in a much better position on that to make a jump offensively. So, yeah, Isaiah is the shortstop. He's the shortstop for this year. Don't ask me if he's the shortstop for the future. That will be determined by this year and the free agent market afterward. All right, we're, we're going around the infield here and then to the outfield talk about the who that the Rangers are going to be starting. We're also going to talk about uh, the Cowboys. and David Moore will be available for us then. We're going to round uh, up uh, here at third base. We've got, uh, I guess, Brock Holt's going to start at third base. Brock Holt and Charlie Culberson. I don't know if it'll be um, a straight platoon. I think Holt's going to get the majority of the at-bats early on, especially since they they face a lot of right-handers. But they'll both mix in. Um, Catcher is Jose Trevino and Jonah Heim. 
it's not a straight platoon, even though Heim is a switch hitter and, and uh, Trevino is a right-handed hitter. I asked about this. Um, Trevino is going to get the bulk of the starts there, whether that's 60% of the starts or 70% of the starts, that's still to be determined. But Trevino is going to be the, um, the primary catcher. Um, when you get to the outfield, I think that's where you've got four guys for three spots right now. Um, you've got David Dahl, who I think you know fits best in left field. You've got Leody Tavares, who is going to be the primary center fielder going into the year. And you've got Joey Gallo, who's rock solid and right. And then right now with Chris Davis and Willie Calhoun hurt, you've got a DH situation that's open where you could use Ronald Guzman against some right-handers. But you could also use Eli White against some left-handers and maybe get either a Gallo or a Tavares or a Dahl off their feet if need be and rotate them through the DH. And I think in a perfect world, Chris Woodward would love to have a little bit more positional versatility and not have a guy whose sole role is DH. Let me ask you this then about that question. Uh, and I know this is going to be one of those things where people say there's spring training numbers. Why not give Adolis Garcia a shot at being the D- a right-handed DH? They may still, I mean, they've, they've got a, a, a spot open on the roster. Um, that's still undecided, but I, I also think that, you know, if you put him on the roster, you probably are going to have to take him off in the not too distant future for Willie Calhoun or for, for Chris Davis. And I think if you're going to bring him up, you probably want to bring him up with the idea that you're going to look at him long-term. And, and so I think that weighs into the decision. Um, Adolis has had a great spring. Uh, you know, the one thing that comes back to my mind is veteran Carlos Peguero who went to spring with the Rangers a few years ago and had a great spring and they, he won a job in spring and came into the season and he couldn't, you know, he, he lived up to his pre- previous big league track record and just could not produce. So I, I, I just worry about guys in that, in that range that at 28, all of a sudden they're going to um, catch it. You know they're they're going to they're going to make a huge adjustment. Maybe he has, and if he has, great for the Rangers. Maybe he becomes a Nelson Cruz. But at this point, I, I feel like the chances are that he's still going to more or less be the guy that had an awful lot of swing and miss in a swing. But here too, this is this here too is where uh, Chris Woodward points out better swing path, better swing decision on the part of, um, of Adolis Garcia. Yeah. I'm not, listen to me in a season like this one, where there's very little going on, there's very little upside to anything here. You're just trying to find out about young people. This is a guy who does have a little bit of a track record of success. He had a lot of home runs for in the Cardinal system at triple a, uh, did a lot. Uh, Who are you going to find out about him over? At DH or for right now, I'm going to find out about over Willie Calhoun or Chris Davis. Why not? Throw him mm-hmm. out there. He's right-handed. Why, why give Ronald Guzman a chance as a DH, as a left-handed DH, or another guy, another left-hander in the lineup? I just as soon see Garcia and see what he can do. But I mean, you would only play Guzman against right-handers. You're not going to play. He's not going to be a full-time DH. And I think that no, the, no, no. I, I, get think, I, I think I get that the whole idea of cycling people through the DH position. I know that's what everybody really wants to do, and I and I get that. I understand it. I just I'm in, I'm intrigued by Garcia. I guess. But I, I, I think say. the argument that you're the argument you're making basically comes down to this. Until whether it's Willie Calhoun or Chris Davis or whatever, I, I, the argument comes down to 
who do you want to see more, Adolis Garcia or Eli White? And that's, I think, where they've made a decision that they feel like they'd probably rather see Eli White because he's got ability to also be an asset defensively. I, I understand that too. I also don't, don't really understand uh, the difference between uh, Eli White and Leody Tavares. I mean, I, I don't understand why that, that everyone is is on the Tavares train. And I, I think that should be, to me, if we're talking about meritocracies here, uh, here, here we go. Uh, Eli White has performed better than, than Tavares has at this point. Why shouldn't he get the shot? Tavares, I, I think the biggest uh, the biggest difference for me has been that Tavares has a little bit more pop in his bat. Um, he's got more offensive tools, I think. Um, they're both really good defenders. Tavares has a little bit more speed, but they're both really good base runners. Where White has made, has to me in my mind, a better feel is, again, on that swing decision metric, He's taken more walks this spring. He's been a little bit more patient at the plate. But I think the Rangers feel like these are two guys that are both athletic that they want to see uh, at the start of this year. All right. That's all that we can talk about the Rangers right now. It's all we can really take, as a matter of fact. Uh, but uh, at that point, I, I want to say that Evan has got something to do now. He, and it's not just, you know, run errands for Gina. It's uh, he has to talk to Chris Woodward here on a, on a Zoom. Uh, so, Evan, uh, you're going to drop out now. And David Moore is going to join us or going to join me anyway to talk about the Cowboys. So, Evan, we'll see you later. Something I'm good at dropping out. Bye bye. Bye. Joining us now, or joining me now, is our old pal, David Moore. Hello, David. How are you? I'm doing well, Kevin. How are you? Hello, Evan. How are you doing as well? <laughs> Evan's already gone, Evan? David. <laughs> Evan. David, don't, don't, be, don't be trying to screw with us now and say <laughs> that, uh, that Evan has just decided not to talk about the Cowboys. Um, so I think so it's best when he doesn't talk about the Cowboys, though, actually. I You've mentioned he, that to me on several occasions. I know he has. I know he has. I, Evan just, bless his heart, he just gets cowed by certain things. It's like, unlike me, I just plunge forward, you know? <laughs> yeah. What the heck? What's going to happen? matter if you here? know anything about it. You can still well, talk about it. What, we what, all do that. About, yeah. I mean, what are they going to do? Take away my birthday? I mean, come <laughs> on. It's, I actually, I would, probably would like that if they would take away a few of them, maybe about <laughs> 15 or 20 of my birthdays would be, would be just fine. Um, so David, uh, first of all, I want to bring up something that our, our, our boss, Gary level, uh, brought up to me, uh, yesterday. Uh, and he said, because of these uh, teams that are in the, uh, uh, elite eight and now Houston being in the uh, final four, he said he, he went down the rabbit hole and saw, uh, some YouTube of, uh, Houston, Arkansas games at Barnhill and Vern Lundquist was doing the game. Uh, this was in 1983. And that, uh, he said, I saw a young Kevin Sherrington down there on press row. And, and it, I, I can tell you the difference is basically it would look like I was wearing a mop on my head <laughs> in 1983, <laughs> a, a, a brown mop. And he said that Vern Lundquist. But a, but a very well-trimmed mop, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, exactly. But, a, uh, and then that Vern did a shout out for you twice for David Moore of the Fort Worth <laughs> Star Telegram for uh, writing a story about how well Arkansas was shooting free throws. And, and of course my response to Gary was what does David know about basketball? 
<laughs> I need to go back and listen to that tape. That's great. Yeah, me too. I, that would be really great, isn't it? Uh, you know, I, and and here's another little person. But again, th- this is a throwback this year, isn't it? I mean, we just had uh, Arkansas Baylor. Now Baylor wasn't in the mix back then, but uh, no, those were certainly was never the halcyon the days of the Southwest Conference basketball. You had Arkansas and the triplets. You had, um, you know. <laughs> People don't even talk about those UT teams, but with LaSalle Thompson and Wacker, and I mean, those were good teams. There were Rice was really good with Ricky Pierce. Uh, the, the conference was just outstanding back then. And, and of course, Phi Slamma Jamma and Houston was the, uh, was the pinnacle of it all. Yeah, you know, I covered Rice when Ricky Pierce was there, uh, and I covered uh, the last two uh, Phi Slamma Jamma uh, Final Fours uh, as well for the old Houston Post. Uh, yeah, I mean, that that ruined me for college basketball, frankly, uh, being around those kinds of players. You know, Ricky Pierce went on to a long career in the NBA. Um, frankly, if, if Houston hadn't had uh, Ricky Pierce, too, I know that's a lot to ask. They already had Clyde Drexler and Akeem yeah. Olajuwon, two of the 50 best NBA players ever. Exactly. Uh, but but Ricky was a phenomenal shooter with unlimited range. That was the one thing that Houston didn't have. Uh, Michael Young was a, was a good shooter, but basically from 16 feet and in, not a not a long range uh, kind of shooter. Well, and even Baylor, like we said, wasn't in the mix back then. But they had Terry Teagle, I believe. Terry and, Teagle and uh, Benny Johnson before that. Yeah, uh, had so you know they were always dangerous. And then you know you went around the league. Uh, Bubba Jennings, SMU Texas had a few Tech. guys. You know, yeah, oh, John Conkac and, mm-hmm. and Larry and, Davis uh, and and Carl Wright, NBA players, Sidney Moncrief from that Arkansas team, and sure. uh, Klein, and were, Joe Klein. Those were mostly late seventies, early eighties. But yeah, and then they, and then you know after that, it trickled into the nineties w- with the the conference with Arkansas being very good. Nolan Richardson really established something then. Yes, uh, and and played uh, some great basketball. Obviously, won a national championship and then played in two national championship games in a row. Uh, but yeah, it, it's, it hasn't been very good since then. You know, it's been a long dry period. It really has. I mean, there were there there, there was such. Uh, a heavy concentration of, of really outstanding individual players that went on to have uh, significant, many of them significant in NBA careers. And then it just, it, it, it slowed to a trickle. And then you just had a long dead period as far as talent, it seemed like in, in this area for basketball, which, which I never could quite understand because um I mean, one player in basketball, certainly college basketball, just transforms a program the way uh, you don't in any other sport. And there's enough talent out there. I just never understood why, uh, you know, this area didn't do a better job. And then they started losing some of the top local players like Larry Johnson and some of those. uh, Yeah, you know, Dave Bliss. Dave Bliss always said that if he had been able to keep Larry Johnson, whose whose uh, test scores weren't uh, were questioned, and so that uh, that was thrown out, and he ended up at UNLV instead. Uh, Dave always said that that was the that was the beginning of the end for SMU. Uh, that he had all kinds of guys lined up behind Larry Johnson who were going to come to SMU because of that. It's hard to say with Dave Bliss. A, a lot went wrong with his career, uh, and so especially when he got to Baylor, and that was a travesty there. But uh, I. I, I do think that the big big thing now is that what you had in the 80s was that the very end of a lot of, of coaching careers, uh, pretty much mm-hmm. across the board, uh, Guy Lewis, Shelby Metcalf, Eddie uh, Gerald Myers coached a few stretch, more years. Yeah. You know, there were there were guys who were who were really good coaches, mm-hmm. but they were at the end of their careers. Uh, I think 
they frankly just weren't replaced. Uh, they, the, until now, we, you know, Baylor obviously is in very good hands with Scott Drew. He's done a tremendous job of rebuilding that program from what it was, which was in ru- just a, in rubble uh, when he took over the program. And it was just the, maybe the worst, uh, for, you know, program in the country at that point uh, because of what everything that had happened there. Uh, and, and now uh, you have him at Baylor. You have Chris Beard at Texas Tech. Uh, I think those two guys are, are phenomenal coaches. Kelvin Sampson's done a, doing a great job at Houston, uh, and uh, there's certainly reason for Houston to be good. I've always said I, I went to the University of Houston. Uh, I, I covered it uh, for three years. Uh, you know, that was the school of Bill Yeoman and, and the and the Veer offense, and they invented all that. And, and it's been very good at times in football, but that's a basketball school, and it mm-hmm. should be a basketball school. They have now been to six Final Fours. I don't know how many programs in the country that can say something like that uh it's, it doesn't make them a blue bloods at all uh but it does make them like louisville a basketball school yeah you're right and, and i think that's that's where you know the the old southwest conference back then before it uh mutated into what it became later um that's where they missed out because still by and large you, you know you hit on it these were all older established coaches who came up in the shadow of football programs and were comfortable with that. And so there really was no, uh, there was no excitement for, for the young coaching pipeline to, Hey, let's go down there as a Southwest conference. Let's go to Texas and be a distant at best second on the pecking order. And and in some schools, you weren't even going to be second, Um, you know, baseball in in some places too was, was pretty strong here. So, uh, so after that group of, of established, uh, really for this area, iconic coaches left, um, there just wasn't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of pull to come here. You know, it was more built on their personality and their continuity. And then you just took that away. And I think that probably does explain the, the long dry period uh, that college basketball underwent here. Well, you know, Shaka Smart just left of his own volition. No one was pushing him out uh, at uh, Texas. He, he went to Marquette. And one of the first things he said was, there, it's really nice to be at a basketball Basketball tradition. School. Yeah, basketball you centric. Know? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, and, and I think that Shaka's in the right place now. This is the kind of place he needs to be. I, I think he showed some things uh, there that were, were uh, while he was at Texas, while he did have some success and certainly had a lot of success this year until he got into the tournament again, uh, that perhaps he needs to be at a school where that doesn't have as many complications, I guess is the nicest way I can to put it that Texas has, uh, not only the fact that you're, you're no, you're not number one on campus, uh, at Texas, if you're a basketball coach, uh, which is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, look, it's, it's Texas and it's football. And so, so everyone should get that and should understand that, but you, you should still be able to win, uh, at Texas. Uh, and, and, and they have just struggled with that, you know, even, and listen, I loved Abe lemons. He was a lot of fun. There was nobody more fun to talk to at a press conference than Abe lemons. They just didn't win enough. Abe complained a lot about getting fired there and he was bitter to the end of his days, uh, at the DeLoss Dodds for firing him. But the DeLoss had every right to do that. He just didn't have every right to hire Bob Weltlick as his successor. That was, that was a mistake. And that was the first of many mistakes that have been made at Texas in basketball. And it's just been, uh, a reason it's, it's, it's not a good reason, uh, for any of this to me to, to have happened the way it has, you know, it's just been too long for basketball to come back. 
as good as uh, football is in this state, obviously, basketball is pretty good too. Now, there, there's a lot of basketball players that come from this state, and there's every reason why this year we're going to have uh, at least well, we're going to have we're going to have two teams in the final four two. from Texas. Yeah, exactly. and and uh, and I'd have to go back and look that up. I don't even remember when the last time that was. Uh, maybe maybe it's never happened, as far as I know. I, I'd have to go back and check to make sure. I think it's going to be my column uh, on Tuesday. So uh, so I hope you do it, research that before you write it. Yeah, I think that'll be really good. Rather than just shoot from the hip on that, they seems hey, to me I don't like remember. this has never happened before. What the heck? Yeah. But no, uh, that, no, I leave I, that kind of stuff for Kalashaw. <laughs> and, and he does a good job at it, if, yeah. if you call that a good job. Um, <laughs> so, you know, not, no, I think you're right. Too. I think also when you're clearly in the shadows, there's a particular style of play you need too. And I think probably Shaka Smart fell victim to that a little bit and maybe some other schools. I mean, it's um, – coming in and, and, and building a, a, a program, a, a defensive style um, that really no stars and it doesn't stand out. I mean, you, you, also, you also have to think of the entertainment standpoint and you have to capture the imagination to kind of break out of the, the second-class citizen role. And, and, you know, because a lot of times you haven't had a lot of the top coaches, you've been unable to recruit uh, those sort of players to come in, but, but you've had pockets of it too. Look, I mean, Kevin Durant, um, you know, uh, h- how many better players uh, are, are in the NBA right now than, than Kevin Durant and, and, and UT had him. So, I mean, Rick Barnes did, did a fine job. Yeah, uh, he did. He really did. So, I mean, it's happened, but uh, now I know, you know, the, the peers would argue, well, that's what the one and dones have done, but um you know, the schools where basketball is more of a priority, they seem to thrive in the one and done, you know, situation because uh, they have a tradition and they know if you go there, you're going to get the recognition and you're going to win. I think a lot of the top high school players just haven't wanted to come to uh, Texas schools because, well, how much is the attention really going to be on me? How much is it going? You know, I, I know I can go to these, I can go to Kentucky and Louisville and Duke and North Carolina and, and I'll be recognized and it's going to help my stock. Um, if I go to Texas or Baylor or Texas tech uh, people just kind of go, Oh, he's a nice player. I wonder why he went there instead of Duke or North Carolina or, you know, and uh, it, it takes a long time to fight out of that cycle, but, but with what Baylor has done here over the last few years, and, and remember last year, they were a number one seed and, and you just didn't have a tournament. Um, but what they're establishing, what Texas tech has been able to do, you're, you're starting to see, uh, some programs here consistently be in that, uh, you know, sweet sweet 16 elite eight level consistently year in and year out. And, and once you do that, to the level they have, I, I think you start to break through. So I, I think this does appear to me a chance. It appears an opportunity where uh, this is, you know, local basketball collegiately is breaking into the upper echelon. 
Yeah, it's good to see. It's been a long, like you said, a long dry spell. Uh, as I said, I, I'm, I was ruined by all that. Uh, so uh, anyway, I'm going to start paying more attention to college basketball again, uh, specifically this week. Um, so David, let's talk a little bit uh, here about the, the Cowboys in the draft. We had uh, uh, Evan on earlier to talk about the Rangers and we've talked about uh, uh, the final four and uh, how we're going to have two teams from uh, Texas in the final four. They'll be playing each other in the semifinals, uh, Houston and Baylor. And that's very exciting. Uh, but let's also talk about the draft coming up. Uh, so Patrick Sertin, uh, the cornerback from Alabama, um, is uh, go to, there's a possibility he'll be there with the 10th pick. When the Cowboys come around uh, to pick number 10 and he is still there, do you think he will be their choice? I think right now he's he's the leader in the clubhouse, if you want to call it that. You know, we're where Dallas is sitting here, the way this draft is unfolding, and, and we still have five weeks to, to to talk through scenarios and and uh, have some red flags on physicals that are you know there's still some movement to be uh, I think that's going to take place. And, and you know, even last week you had two trades. Uh, I believe there's a, a chance you're going to see you know one or two more potentially, at least one more, maybe potentially ahead of Dallas before this thing unfolds. Um, so there are a lot of the, the dynamics are moving right now, but um, you know, where Dallas sits right now with the number, with the number of quarterbacks and wide receivers in this draft and with teams lusting after quarterbacks the way we have they always have but we've seen even uh, you know taken to new levels here over the last four to five years uh, Dallas is really sitting in a position where at number 10 they could have the first defensive player taken in this draft and uh, for a team that needs defense I think that's a pretty good position to be in uh, right now you would say you look at the corner position and Patrick Sertan uh by most is regarded as the top corner, um, you know, Caleb Farley, uh, some had Farley ahead of him, uh, but this micro dissectomy that he underwent last week, um, I, you know, Dallas, Dallas has certainly shown it is not adverse to taking a risk, but those usually come in the second round when you're sitting at number 10, I don't know that you can take a risk. Uh, you, you've got a hit on number 10. And you're not betting on the upside. You're betting on what's there. And to, uh, to pass a guy with basically no red flags to take one with a red flag uh, just doesn't make a lot of sense at that position. Uh, maybe it would later in the first round, but not there. So, All right. So, let's, yeah, let's I, I think Sertan's the most. But I tell you what, I, I think uh, don't dismiss J.C. Horn, mm -hmm. uh, South Carolina. Uh, you know, last week, Patrick Sertan – and I believe it was when we were doing the show, had his pro day and just wowed with all of his numbers, uh, you know, with the, with the broad jump, um, you know, the vertical, um, the, the bench press. Basically, all of these measurables put him in the top, by and large, the top, you know, 10% uh, percentile uh, among all of corners. And then J.C. Horn, two days later, came in at, at South Carolina's pro day and basically bested just about every one of those. Now, there's more to playing the position than just bench press and, and you know, long jump and, uh, you know, vertical. We don't want to get too caught up in all of that. But uh, I think he's, he's a corner that you certainly discussed there as well. 
Yeah, I, I have kind of mentioned this before. I, I, to me, I like a cornerback who's got a chip on his shoulder. And it yep. seems to me that J.C. Horn would be the perfect guy to have really a chip does. on his shoulder because everyone has talked about Caleb Farley and Patrick Sertain being the two best cornerbacks in the draft. That You just hear that over and over and over again. Well, J.C. Horn, I'm sure, is sick of that at this point. And he's uh, not back down about it either. He's talked openly about, hey, I'm, I'm with that group. You know, yeah. I, I may be the best of that group. I mean, he's Absolutely. not shy about talking about it. So, so given that, given that, I want you to discuss this scenario with you. Let's say that at 10, uh, when the Cowboys uh, would be on the clock, let's say that uh, Mac Jones, the quarterback from Alabama, was still available, did not go in the top nine picks. And, and uh, I'm, not, I'm not advocating for the Cowboys to take a quarterback, not after you just signed Dak Prescott to a four-year deal. Uh, but – uh, some other team is really going to want to have Mac Jones. Uh, I, I'm thinking New England at 15 in particular would really be interested in having a guy who draws so many comparisons to Tom Brady. Uh, what would you think of the, of the the potential for the Cowboys to say, you know what, we'll drop down five picks here. We'll pick up uh, a third round, a third rounder for this, uh, for dropping five down and we will roll the dice that either Caleb Farley or J.C. Horn or Patrick Sertain is still going to be there at 15. Well, I think your corners would be gone there. You know, I, um, I think at least two of those corners would be gone. I, I think it's very difficult right now to, to put Farley in the top 15 to 20. Uh, I really do. Um, from a talent perspective, no. But, uh, you know, not only did he have a micro dissectomy just now, but – Remember, he opted out of the two of the twenty of the twenty twenty season uh, for COVID concerns and to prepare for the draft. So he was basically all he was doing was preparing for draft day for his pro day uh, this past year. And then you go back to the end of the two thousand nineteen season. He missed the bowl game and the regular season finale with back spasms. So you know, having this micro dissectomy on top of that. Uh, I think that's very concerning. Not, not to say he can't work past it and he can't play in the league, but, um, boy, that's a, that's a lot. Teams are going to have to work through that quite a bit in my mind. So, um, you know, I think if Dallas won, I don't see Dallas – I think that's a great scenario uh, because Dallas then would wind up with five picks in the first 100. Now, I don't see him going back – I think if you go back much more than five, it gets pretty dicey. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to lose out on that plateau of players you like, and it depends on how deep that plateau is. But I, I would say that uh, if only offensive players have went there, only offensive players went in the top nine, and then New England targeted or another team uh, a few spots back targeted and said, we'll get to 10 if you roll back. Well, now suddenly 10 is going to be offense as well. So now you've gone to the first 10 picks and no – so then you only have if you have four players, four defensive players on your board, and there's really no separation. Um, I say, yeah, you get that strong consideration. And, and in that scenario, I think Sertan and J.C. Horn w- would be two guys who are on that. I would think Micah Parsons, uh, the linebacker out of Penn State, is, is certainly uh, a player there, too. And, and really, you know, there's debate on this, but uh, – Jalen Phillips yesterday at Miami just really wowed people uh, with his workout. Yeah, and he is arguably the best edge rusher uh, in this draft. And so that would give you four players right there to 
to pick from. And if you know you got the fourth of those and you had them all rated pretty equally on your board, you know, why not? And, and if you lose out on a corner there, this is still a deep draft at corner. You can get a corner in the second round. So um, if you still feel you can do that and you're going to come away with the top edge rusher in this draft potentially or the top linebacker in this draft, um, I think you can make a very strong argument to do that because then suddenly you're adding a fifth pick in the top 100. And um, this team, uh, like I said, you just have to be really careful on that. And, and this, this goes to the whole argument we've talked about in free agency on, on this podcast before where, you know, don't just talk to me about quantity in free agency. Talk about quality. Maybe get a few, maybe get fewer guys, but get a blue chip guy. Um, you don't want to trade so far away at 10 because you're getting a blue chip guy. Like we said, your pick of all the defensive players in the draft is what it looks like right now. Um, you go back five spots and suddenly you take the fourth or fifth best uh, defensive player. Does that make sense? And that's what they would have to sort through. Yeah, those are and those are certainly very interesting points about that. And and I, I certainly agree with that. If I think I'm really getting the best guy, then that's what I'm going to go ahead and do. Right. If if you sure. if you believe this Patrick Sertain is the best guy, there's no question in my mind. You know, you like him for all the reasons that that uh, we saw what Nick Saban about, said about him, that he is everything about him is great. Great person, great preparation. I thought it was really interesting what he said, what Nick said about uh Patrick was that we present to the team on scouting reports that the players are responsible for those. And he does a better job than anybody on those. So those kind of things and those qualities are very interesting to me in that kind of player. But I want to talk about something that, uh, that very quickly, I'll just say from Cowboys perspective, they love Trayvon Diggs and they have Sertan rated ahead of Trayvon Diggs. I mean, Trayvon Diggs was a second round pick. Uh, Patrick Sertan, you're talking about potentially the top defensive player in the draft. So uh, this is a play. You already have a player who played next to him out of that system that you love and you're convinced he's going to be a really good player for you. And now you're taking someone who's rated ahead, ahead of him coming from that same system. Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to talk about some other things uh, in this draft as well. But I, I did want to, to make the point that if you go back and look at the Cowboys history, when they have drafted well, and you know, we always like to criticize, you know, the, the whole drafting process with the Cowboys, and, and 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 rightfully so. You know, there have been some terrible drafts. It's not unjustified, but, yeah. It's not unjustified. The biggest problem for the Cowboys over the years has been they simply were not in those top 100 picks. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the the biggest problem has been when they trade out and trade down because because Jimmy started that trend and he did a really good job with it, and Jerry picked it up and he wasn't so good at it. And, and so when you're picking players that are in the 200s and 300s and 400s, it's a lot harder to find really good players in that bunch. But if you're picking – the more players you pick in the top 100, the better your chances. The Cowboys have shown that uh, across, uh, across the, the decades that, that Jerry Jones has been the owner of the team. If I'm picking up that there, even I can't screw this up. So uh, I, I'm gonna, we're going to have to wrap it up there, uh, but we're going to talk more about the draft as we get closer to it. There are going to be a lot of things to talk about. I get the idea that David has a pretty good idea who's on the Cowboys uh, draft board these days. And so we're going to be able to talk about those things in upcoming podcasts. We also talked about in other segments today about the, the Rangers and, and who's going to be in their starting lineup this, uh, this uh, week when they open up. And we're also, we also talked a little bit about the, the final four and Texas basketball. We're going to get to talk about that more next week. And, and hopefully 
that uh, some team from Texas is going to come home with the national title next week. That'd be only the second national title in Texas, his, the state of Texas history after Texas Western, now UTEP. So well, just assured at least one Texas team will be in the, in the uh, championship game, correct? No, they're both on the same side of the thought, bracket. Yeah, you that's said, what I'm saying. So one, yeah. Oh, one, so, one, 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 yes, one, one will. will be in. Yeah, one yeah, of them absolutely. will advance. Yeah. I thought you meant that, that they'd be playing. No, either either Baylor or Houston will be playing. Either Baylor or Houston is going to be in the in the final game. So that's very exciting to know that. Uh, and I don't know about their – if Gonzaga makes it, when we're uh, taping this on Tuesday, uh, we don't know if they're yet, they're yet. I think they're really good. Baylor's looked really good. I think Baylor's chances are better than Houston's. Uh, I think Houston needs a little more offense. They play great. Baylor and Gonzaga look really good. Looks very good. So from everybody in here to everybody out there, thanks for coming in, and we'll check you next time.